Okay, so welcome to the uh, Sirius seminar for this week, and uh, I'm proud to introduce that our speaker today is one of our own, a PhD candidate here from the Department of Computer Science at Purdue. Uh, Shi Qing Ma is, uh, uh, got his undergraduate degree at the School of Software Engineering in Shanghai, and he has focused his research on software system security, software engineering, and machine learning. He's a recipient of several awards, including the, the Bisland Dissertation Fellowship and two distinguished paper awards from NDSS and, and Usenix. So with that, I'm pleased to turn it over to Shin Qing. Thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Shin Qing Ma. And then today, I'm going to talk about the, a paper K-Call, kernel-supported cost-effective audit logging for causality tracking. So first, to give you a very high-level overview of uh, what I do is a forensics analysis. This is a concrete example. So suppose you are using Firefox, uh, browsing the website, and you click some link to download a malware. Unfortunately, this, this uh, software is a malware, and this piece of malware will steal some of, some of the information from your computer and uh, send it to the remote server. So a traditional Forensics analysis does is to have a logging component, which basically logs all the system events, such as uh, the creation of the process and uh, the socket operations, file operations, like receive information from a socket and, and uh, then write to a file. This reflects uh, the download behavior. And then it start and uh, uh, then another process is created from a binary file. Uh, task command, the downloaded file. And then there are some behaviors, some of its behaviors, including reading the secret file and send it to the remote attacker. So when we found you know, some of the information are leaked from the socket one, we start our investigation. By doing the forward, by doing the backward tracing, we know that uh, socket one is created by the process 4893. And then this process is created from the binary task command. And, uh, and it reads some information from the file FD. And then the task command is actually downloaded by the process 1224, which is the browser process. And uh, this process uh, reads some information from socket 0. So you can see there is an information flow from socket 0 to task command, which is a download behavior. And the the another process, the malicious process 4893, basically reads the information from a, a file FD, the secret file, and send it to the remote server by using the socket one. And this malicious process is created from the binary task command. So this is a very simple example to illustrate how forensics analysis in the system security works. And this is a, a a, a very simple graph actually generated in only five minutes from a real-world system. So as you can see, it's pretty complicated. Welcome to the real world. It's very hard for us to do. But this also gives us the opportunity to do more research. A typical data provenance system contains two components. The first one is the data connection part, basically the part which does the logging. It connects uh, system-level events and logs them into disk for future analysis. These events include the file or socket operations, including open, read, write, and close, and also the process creation and termination. 
The other part is the data processing part, which analyzes the log data and produces the dependence graph, or you can say the proneness graph or causality graph. They are all the same here. By performing the backward or forward analysis, backward analysis means we start from the uh, from a file and we trace backward uh, along the timestamp. So we are actually trying to find the root cause of this attack. And the forward analysis basically means it starts from a, a uh, starts from the, the singleton event will be the start of the investigation, and all the found events will be the consequences. Such as if we start from a downloaded malware, the forward tracing will tell you how does the malware works, and what files are affected by this malware. The object we mainly study is the Linux Audit Framework. This is the most popular framework, audit framework on Linux. It's a, it has been integrated with many other commercial tools. And this is a, the its kernel component. The audit capability is actually shipped with a mainline kernel. It's part of the source code. And the Linux Audit Framework has a kernel component and a user space tool. The user space will log all the events, including all the system calls and uh, file operations, including open, close, etc. So this is the most popular data collection system we use. But it has two major problems. Uh, the first one is uh, it's pretty slow, and the second one is uh, it generates very, very large log files. Here are some simple data for the runtime overhead. So we profiled a few applications using the standard benchmark, and uh, for the for some programs like Wim, we actually write the uh, they they have batch mode. So we actually write uh, our own uh, script to test the performance. This is with uh, Linux audit system and comparing with a native Linux without audit system enabled. As we can see, the runtime overhead. Uh, for some of the client programs, which basically are heavily user interactions, is not uh, is still okay. It's uh, less than ten percent overhead. But for many programs, especially the server programs, is uh, very high. Some of them are over forty percent. This is the runtime overhead. Another one is the space overhead. Uh, we have uh, ten machines, and this is the data for over one months, 30 days, and the uh, and their log sizes measured in gigabytes. And as we can see, the maximum accurate generates more than 1,200 gigabytes in one month. On average, the server machines generate more data than the client machines. But as you can see, the, the minimum, even the minimum one actually generates two gigabytes per day. Uh, if you if you think this is a single machine, if you think of a an enterprise which has uh, thousands of machines, the log size is huge, and when you do the investigation, it's almost impossible. And especially for many of the APT attacks, the attacks will last for a few months or even years, so the investigation is pretty heavy. Okay, uh, here are here are my Links uh, audit system overhead analysis compared with the uh, links audit uh, disabled. First, I will tell you how does the links audit works. 
So suppose we have an application. If we enable the links audit in the kernel component, it has a few filters, which are the components which collects the system call or file operations. The, the user is for before the system call, and the task is basically the ones logging the system call internal data, and the exit logs the return values, etc., from the system call. And exclude is the one used to you know, uh, exclude some of the specific uh, cases from the general, the other three filters. For example, you can define a exit uh, uh, for all the read system calls, but not for a few specific processes or files. And uh, after all the data are collected, the kernel will send all the data to the user space through the netlink. Netlink is a uh, kernel user space communication mechanism. It's a socket-like uh, mechanism. Basically, it creates a socket from the kernel to the user space. And the audit D, the user space tool, will collect all the logged data and write it to the disk. Our, the, the experiment is done with the standard benchmark and also the, the batched files we use to test the overhead. And for the kernel component, we found that only 5% of the overhead is caused by the filtering. Because especially these are just uh, keyword matching, so it's pretty fast. And 45% uh, of the overhead is actually caused by the netlink. Because it's kind of like socket, you will have conjunctions, and the traffic might be, you need to queue in everything. And uh, uh, the other half actually caused by the disk I.O. Disk I.O. Uh, from in the user space, basically writing the log entries to the file. This experiment actually is done with uh, uh, different uh, hardware platforms, including the HDD and the SSD. We observe similar results. Uh, the main difference is actually, uh, even though SSD is pretty fast, but the applications have different behavior patterns. For example, for Firefox, it has a, a, a certain part of the logic will generate a lot of events, but the other certain part of the logic won't. So the events sent from the kernel to the user space actually will, will have a special pattern. Some of, some, in some time, sometimes it will generate a huge amount of data, which is very even even for SSD, it's pretty heavy workload, and uh, it will have all the queuing and everything. That's why SSD and HDD doesn't really matter for the hardware platform. And for the storage, it's, uh, uh, as I showed before, it generates uh, 2 to 40 gigabytes per day. So overall, you can see all the problems actually is mainly caused by the number of logged events. For the, for the storage overhead, the number of logged events is pretty large. That's why we have a very, large hard, very large log files, which are very hard for us to investigate. And for the runtime overhead, runtime overhead because the number of logged events are pretty large, every logged entry will have to go through the filter and the transferring and writing to the disk, which causes a very high runtime overhead. So a natural question is uh, if, if it's uh, possible to reduce the number of the log events so that we can benefit uh, 
for both the storage part and also the runtime part. So we dig into the logs and try to see if, the, if we can really do this by analyzing if the audit log is really redundant or not. So here we define a redundant events uh, from, from the forensics point of view. Basically, if one event that basically events that represents the same dependency relationships will be considered to uh, redundant. For example, I have uh, listed uh, nine events on the right hand side. As you can see, all the red ones are basically uh, are redundant uh, events because they represent the same dependence we have observed before. In event one, the process read a file from FD4. And then in event 5, it, it writes to a file FD5. All the other events actually representing the same dependence. So this gives us uh, the opportunity to actually remove all these redundant events and uh, hopefully we can get uh, a faster logging system and with uh, very small log files. So the core cool idea of our KCAL design is to prevent the redundant events from being generated at the kernel level. Because if uh, we do the reduction at the user space, we have to go through all the filter and the, uh, the socket I.O. We can only reduce from the disk I.O., which is not what we want. So we want to remove the redundant events from the kernel. So the benefit will be no redundant events in the log files is easier for us to analyze, and uh, no transferring or disk writing for the redundant events, which saves us for the runtime part. The challenge part is mainly for the it's, it's a online data processing. We need to determine if one event is redundant or not, and then we decide if we want to generate the event or not. So potentially this can cause a very large runtime overhead. Luckily, as I shown before, currently the kernel filtering part is not very heavy, uh, which gives us some room to actually take advantage of this and uh, have a faster, lightweight uh, filtering system. Here is the overall design. So in the kernel part, we modified the kernel audit to, to perform the online log reduction, basically to determine if one log is uh, redundant or not. And uh, to do this, we actually leverage some of our existing works, the execution unit-based partitionings to actually we use modified applications. And uh, we also modified the manner of the kernel space to help us uh, to assist the uh, reduction. And uh, the other part is uh, the uh, communication between kernel and the user space. We use a shared memory instead of uh, Netlink, and then the other part has the, the same. So why? The first part. Let's talk about the shared memory and the shared memory and the Netlink. So why do we use the shared memory instead of a Netlink? It's uh, motivated by this experiment we did. So we have uh, we we tested the three different uh, kernel user space communication mechanisms and found. Uh, uh, shared memory is the fastest one. Uh, the x axis uh, here represents the size of uh, Im size of messages per message, and the y axis uh, represents the time used to the average time used to 
send one message measured by the CPU cycles. As we can see, Netlink is, uh, takes uh, half of the time uh, compared with, uh, uh, sorry, shared memory takes half the time compared with uh, Netlink. So one natural question you may ask is why, why the audit framework use the Netlink instead of a shared memory? This is because uh, the uh, audit framework was developed in the 1990s. Back then, the memory is uh, limited. But for the shared memory, you need to pre-allocate a bunch of memory to hold the data and for the transferring, which is very expensive at that time. But currently, memory is, uh, we have more memory and we can take advantage of such mechanisms. And the other three parts are all related with the online log reduction part. I will talk, to, I will talk about them individually. So the first one about the <coughs> The online redu reduction is very challenging because if you want to de determine if one event is redundant or not, you need to have an online dependence analysis to see if we have seen this dependency before or not, based on our definition. So the dependency analysis in general is, uh, all, is already a very, very hard problem, mainly because uh, existing, many of the existing dependence analysis techniques are not very accurate. And, uh, for the whole system level, the dependency is very, very complex. Here, we leveraged some of our previous, previous works to solve this problem. So for the online reduction, we first uh, will talk about the execution unit applications. So to, to, to have a more better understanding, I will give you an example here. So suppose we use Chrome to browse the web and download a, file, a few files, including a malware. And the malware will send some links to the outside. This is uh, just like the previous example. And when you perform the analysis, your analysis on the logged files, suppose, uh, the, suppose we, we start from the process 2020, when it's created, we know this is a malicious process, and we get its uh, where it's downloaded, the downloaded process is uh, the browser process. But uh, when we reach here, we have a very, we have a problem because we can't specifically tell which, which IP is the source of the downloaded malware because we don't know the type information or anything from the system level. Then we all have a dependency explosion problem because all the previously visited IP potentially can be the source of this downloaded malware. And uh, th uh, the same thing will happen for the forward analysis. So this is why the traditional dependence analysis won't really work. So the, the fundamental reason of this is for a long-running process, we usually have a few phases. The first one is the enter part, basically initialize everything. And then we have a few you know, it's uh, event-driven. We have a few user actions and the, like a uh, user click or open some websites by typing on the address bar. And we have a few events. People know they are isolated. They don't depend on each other. But from the program analysis point of view, you don't really know. So when you have a downloaded file and uh, you start the investigation from this file, the, the dependency in the program point of view is like this. 
So all the handlers will depend on previous handlers. And uh, if you do the traditional backward analysis, you will get a graph like this. That's how the dependency exposed. And then, but uh, actually, because the events are actually isolated, the logic in the program execution should be isolated. And if we, we will have a dependence graph like this. If we analyze based on this dependence relationship, we will have a accurate and a smaller graph like this. So one event, is, it should be causally related only with the logic that used to handle this event, but not the previous events. So the key point uh, here is to how is to actually partition the long-running processes into the execution units. Units we call them uh, execution units, which uh, each unit is uh, just a logical part which deals only with only one external event. So this is our solution. Basically, we do a execution unit level dependence analysis. We partition the whole the, the whole process into multiple small parts to perform a more fine-grained analysis. So we have, uh, uh, we have done two systems on this. The first one is BIP published in 2013, and the, the other one is MPI, it's just published last year. That's also the talk I gave uh, last year here. So uh, the next part will, will be the online log reduction part. Uh, to to describe the, about this part, I will give you a. We classify the redundancy into three different uh, categories. The first one is the in-unit redundancy. In-unit redundancy looks like this. So, in-unit uh, redundancy basically are the same operations on the same object in the same unit. So, uh, one typical example will be the WIM loading a file. The right-hand side, the, the corner part, which tells you the code used to load a file in Wim, it reads a file constantly in a loop and inserts the read component into a uh, into a piece into a tree structure actually, because uh, uh, a tree structure is more flexible in editing, so that you can insert at any point of the file. So when you load the file, you actually the, the whole loading process is uh, separated to many, many iterations. And uh, each time it only loads a piece of the file and insert to the memory. So you will have uh, at least a long sequence of read system calls. Actually, this is uh, uh, some of them are written in the application logic to separate the read events into many of them. And some, sometimes uh, when you use uh, libc to read a large file, libc actually will automatically partition your read into a sequence of uh, read system calls, mainly because the limited buffer size in the kernel. You can't load the whole thing because uh, of the memory issue. So that's uh, how we get a long sequence of uh, events. But uh, in all the units, because they are doing the same thing, the dependencies are all the same, so that's how. But uh, that's and all these events are actually redundant from the Francis analysis point of view. And then this is one part, the in-unit redundancy. 
The other one is a cross unit redundancy. So one example is shown here. So we have uh, two units here. Uh, event, uh, events 1 to 5 is one unit, and events 6 to 10 is another event, is another unit. These, unit, these two units are actually basically doing the same thing. So these events, if they are doing the same thing, it doesn't really matter when it happens. Uh, for example, some of the repeated operations like win, you, you usually open a file, you do some editing and save it. That's one unit. And then when you do some more action, like editing the file and then save it again, you will have uh, another unit. Actually, these two units are basically doing the same thing, represent, uh, represents all the same dependencies. Uh, when you perform the analysis, it doesn't really matter. Uh, because if we can reserve all the dependencies, we don't really care how many times it happens. So tracking one of them is sufficient for us to build a dependency graph. And the third one is a temporary, as a temporary files. Here I list a, a, an example. All these uh, events are actually redundant. Why? Because uh, the file fd5 is created and uh, read and write, operated by the same process and then deleted it later. So well, we define the temporary files not from the time perspective, because uh, on many systems, the temporary file is usually referred to the files which you know uh, reddens on the system for like a few seconds or a few minutes. We define the temporary files from the provenance point of view. Basically, these files are the ones created and uh, operated and deleted by the same process and it's never shared by uh, another process. Cases will be the web resources, like the, when you are browsing the website, you will download many video clips and the images, and they will be rendered on your browser and then deleted sometime later. Uh, actually, for, for Firefox, we profiled Firefox, and uh, during a normal day, Firefox reads about 10 gigabytes data on your disk, but uh, your disk never got full because of Firefox, right? Because most of the files will be deleted. These files, uh, uh, another uh, an intuitive understanding uh, of the temporary files are just like, these files are just uh, too big for the memory to hold. So that's why they store on the disk. If, uh, if sometime we can get a huge memory, I believe many of the applications will actually hold all this kind of data in the memory. So you can think of these memory, these files are just like uh, memory variables in your program. Uh, if you do the analysis, you won't really care about them because it's just uh, temporary. And uh, back to the example, because we, we observed uh, the file FD5 is uh, created and uh, read and write and uh, eventually deleted by the same process. So in, during the whole lifetime, it's the only interaction is with the same process. It does, it's kind of like a, a, a building component of the process execution instead of a, an external resource. So uh, the next part, where I will talk about uh, how we mod modify the Linux kernel to help us, uh, to assist us do the 
to 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 do the log reduction. So for the for the idea is basically we we model these problems as a cache problem. So if uh, the the scene scene really if we observe a new relationship, we cache it. And if uh, it's uh, something we have observed before, we don't really care. And uh, for the in-unit redundancy detection, we we have a new data structure called the unit dependency cache in the in the task data structure. And in, for the process level, we have another one to detect the cross-unit redundancy detection. And for file operations, because we need to remember the status of the file, because uh, until the file is deleted from the disk, we can determine if this is a temporary file or not. So that's why we need uh, some data structure to store the uh, file status. For the in-unit redundancy, we, have a, we use a read set. Basically, for one unit, we will lock all the object, objects, objects refer to the files uh, we have read before. And for each read, if uh, we have seen this before, we don't do anything. If it's uh, not in the read set, we add it to the read set. And for write, because one write operation well, depends on all the previous uh, read information, because uh, previous, uh, all, all the objects in the read set uh, potentially can affect the uh, information we write out from the unit. And uh, by using this uh, read set, we detect all the redundant dependencies. If it's a new dependent, we will put it uh, into the cache. And for the cross-unit dependence, we basically do, we, we, we perform the reduction during the merge. So when, when one unit uh, try to exit like uh, event 5 and uh, event 10. We do a detection here to see if we have seen similar patterns before. If we have seen this uh, dependence uh, pattern before, so it's redundant, we remove it. We don't merge to the unit, to the process level dependence cache. If it's a new one, we will add it to the dependence level cache. And for the temporary files, we basically define a state machine to determine if the file is temporary or not. So when we start, if uh, we, we observe a normal open system call, uh, it's not a temporary file because this file have been, have been written to the disk before. And if it's a create event, we know, you know this process is creating this file. And, uh, the status goes to uncertain during the whole lifetime if we do editing or closing and open it again stuff like that it's still uncertain because uh, it's still read or write by the same process and if we do some persistent uh, operation or shared operation like uh, when <coughs> like in firefox when you download a file it will have a dialog which asks you if you want to open this file or save this file to the disk. If you choose the open operation, uh, it will st the file will be downloaded into a temporary file system in the disk, but it will be shared by another process. It will be directly read by another process, and later this file will be deleted. This file is uh, the traditional temporary file, but it's not temporary in our scenario. 
because uh, this file is shared between two processes. And uh, from the uncertain uh, status, if uh, eventually this file is deleted by the same process, we mark it as a temporary file, and all the corresponding events will be deleted. And all these uh, operations are assisted by the data structure we modified in the file. Uh, and now let's talk about the evaluation. So this is a case called runtime overhead. Uh, still, we compared the we use the same set of applications and the same benchmarks to test the, the performance. Uh, we divide the overhead into two parts. The first one is uh, uh, caused by KCAL. Our logging system uh, marked in the orange color, so including the filtering and the logging. The other part is because uh, all these applications has to be instrumented. So the instrumentation overhead, it, the, the overhead caused by instrumentation is marked in the blue. As you can see, for all the programs, uh, the runtime overhead is uh, still less than 16%. And this is a space overhead. We actually this is a, because to to do a fair comparison, we actually applied the algorithm on the logged data previously we collected to guarantee you know we have the same workload. So this this is essentially just using the same algorithm on the same workload, and uh, uh, we have similar patterns here. But notice as a uh, the y-axis, the largest uh, file we get is only 120 gigabytes, less than 100. It's uh, uh, comparing with previously, it's uh, over 1,000 gigabytes. Uh, we saved 90% uh, of the overhead. Currently, it's 10% uh, of the original one. And this is a redundancy analysis. We we listed uh, five machines. Uh, and the in-unit, uh, cross-unit, and the temporary file, and eventually the uh, events we reserve for forensics analysis. For different machines, uh, because of the different uh, applications, uh, the percentage for different category actually different. But overall, uh, we can remove about 90% of the logged events and only use 10% of the logged events to recover the whole attack story. So we, I have more evaluations in the paper, including all the internal data and everything. If you are interested, please read the paper. And uh, finally, there are some uh, discussions here. First one, uh, KCAL is a forensics analysis tool. Uh, we modified the, it's, it's based on Link's audit framework, but it's no longer a audit tool anymore. It's only used for forensics because we have lost uh, many, many information. And the KCAL requires the instrumented applications to support the execution unit-based log reduction. Uh, currently, we have uh, only one log reduction and uh, the uh, redundancy detection algorithm. Uh, if we can, we can also leverage others if it's possible. But this is one of our uh, limitation for now. And the third one is uh, KCAL actually modifies the uh, Link's uh, kernel source code. We, we try to see how feasible we can port it, uh, how easily we can port it. 
uh, report from uh, our original development was on kernel 3.19 and uh, we ported it to 3.2 and we observed uh, we only need to modify eight lines uh, code. This is because of, because of the data structure is modified. So in order to uh, fetch some of the data structure fields, we need to modify the pointers and stuff. So as a summary, we, we developed uh, KCAL, the kernel support uh, cost-effective audit logging for causality tracking. It's based on the Lynx audit framework, used only for forensics analysis. It features a low runtime overhead and a space overhead. The, the main idea of our KCAL design is to reduce the redundant events before even generating them at the kernel level. So we can reduce the overhead cost by filtering, transferring, writing, storing the, all the redundant events. And uh, thank you. I have uh, 10 minutes, I think. Any questions? So where do you plan on actually running the forensics process? So the idea would be you run this during runtime, or would you run this after like an infection has occurred and see what it's doing? Uh, so forensics analysis is uh, usually performed after the attack is detected. So uh, you, you basically have a online component. You have uh, the logging part running and you store all the logs. Sometimes you will save all the logs into a remote server, into a centralized server. And uh, when, the event, when, when the attack is detected, uh, sometimes uh, you, know, you know the file is leaked to the outside world, or sometimes uh, you observe uh, malware, and you start the investigation. Uh, actually, the we 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 our our experiments uh, are done both on the servers and the uh, clients. Uh, links, uh, I think links audit supports uh, links uh, from uh, two point four. Yeah, that's uh, it's a development. Uh, it's uh, developed uh, by Red Hat and uh, IBM in the late nineteen nineties. It has a long time support and uh, is well maintained by the community. Anything else? Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.